0: All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for giving us this this evening that we might come together and enjoy fellowship as your people, knowing that our love for one another is found in the Holy Spirit, the new life that he's given us in our relationship to Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body, his church. We thank you for that relationship that's been established by your grace. In fact, the very fact that we can come here and enjoy one another's Christian fellowship is a constant reminder that we are a new people, that we have a new life and a new direction, and all this comes because you have loved us with an everlasting love. We pray that tonight we would appreciate all the more the way you have loved us in giving us direction and giving us your holy word as a revelation for our lives. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to its message for us and give us a sense of commitment and dedication to studying it to the end, that we might uh, mine from it all the jewels of truth and practical correction and guidance that we need for our lives. We pray that you would help us tonight to learn a great deal and to put this uh, book of Hebrews in a proper historical perspective, that we would understand it aright. We would not read into it things from our own imagination, but we would find there the truths you intend for us to live by. And we pray these things asking forgiveness of our many sins in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, this is the first of our studies of the book of Hebrews. I um, had never taught through the book of Hebrews in a detailed fashion like I have, say, the book of Revelation. But I do know a great deal about the book of Hebrews from my own personal study and also a classroom study. And my guess is it's going to take us a little while to finish this book. I'm not going to make any promises about, well, 13 weeks from now we'll have this polished off. That doesn't seem likely. But I'm not going to unduly detain us either. However, there is a long lesson tonight. I have a lot that has to be covered, so I'm going to jump right into it. Because tonight I want to try to give you a historical background to the book of Hebrews. Before I do that, let's stop and ask ourselves, why is he doing that? I and mean, is it just because there's this tendency not to want to get into the text? Is that why Dr. Bronson is stopping to give us a historical rundown first? Well, no, it isn't that. I, I mean, I'd love nothing better but for us to just go to that very first word, God. Having of old. I mean, it's beautiful opening a line here in the book. I want to get into that. But the problem is you cannot understand a book of the Bible properly if you don't know its setting. We believe in contextual exegesis. And context is not simply literary context, the setting of certain statements in terms of their own paragraph or sentence, in terms of the whole Word of God. But the context includes the intention of the author, the kind of people he was writing to, the problems that were on his mind, who he was, where he was, when he was. We need to know these things so that we'll understand properly the meaning of God's word. And so I'm going to, without any further apology, do some fairly technical study of the background of the book of Hebrews for you. Because it's a long lesson, I've decided to do something unorthodox. I'm going to read my conclusion first. So if you kind of, you know, get lost in the trees in a few minutes, you'll at least know where we're going to end up, okay? And besides, if you hear the conclusion, you say, oh, that sounds good to me, then you can get up and you can leave and come back for the next lesson. But um, here's the way I see the book of Hebrews. I believe that it was written by a second-generation Christian most likely a converted Hellenistic Jew who knew Timothy, but from the absence of mention about him, Paul was already dead. I believe the book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish Christian congregation in Italy, probably a congregation in Rome itself, which had existed for some time. It wasn't a brand new church but was now being threatened with apostasy to Judaism on the part of the converted Jews there, and threatened, on the other hand, by Roman persecution. The fall of Jerusalem, which is not mentioned anywhere in the book, and I think it's just too relevant a point to have been omitted if it had already happened. fall of Jerusalem has not taken place, but it is imminent, according to Hebrews 10.25, There has been a period of suffering in this church up to this point for the Roman or Italian readers, but they had not yet suffered under martyrdom. And so in the end, I want to place this epistle sometime after the edict of Claudius, the Roman Emperor Claudius, but prior to the outbreak of the Neronian persecution. And so I'm going to put it probably in the day... 64 A.D. In a word, second generation Christian, a converted Hellenistic Jew, who knew Timothy, writes to a Jewish Christian congregation in Italy in the year 64 A.D. A congregation that has been there a while but is now threatened with apostasy to Judaism on the one hand and persecution from Rome on the other. Now, how did he get all of that? Let's go back and work on this point by point by point. The first question we want to ask ourselves tonight is, who wrote the book of Hebrews? You hopefully have all read through the book at some time in your life. Maybe you read it in preparation for tonight's lesson. That would be great. But one way or another, I want someone to tell me, what does the book say about its author? Who wrote it? Where does it say who wrote the book? Judith, it doesn't. It's an anonymous book. And from the earliest period of the church, there has been no firm tradition regarding the authorship of the book of Hebrews. Um, The early church father, Origen, had a personal opinion that it was Paul who wrote the book, but his famous words were, and I quote him, but who wrote the epistle? God only knows, certainly. And uh, when all is said and done, I'm going to end up at that conclusion. I think only God knows who wrote this book when all is said and done. Many leading scholars in our day wisely decline to propose any definite name for the author, but it will probably help us to go through a few of the possibilities and see why uh, these possibilities have been set forth, these suggestions made, and why they are not completely convincing. The Eastern... Christian Church regarded the book as written by Paul from the earliest days and showed very little hesitation to use the book as canonical. Uh, You see this opinion in uh, Church Fathers like Pantanus and Clement of Alexandria and Origen that I've already mentioned. In the Western Church, however, the Church centered in Rome, there was less use made of the book and a very wide variety of suggestions as to its author. Some thought it was Paul. Eusebius, the church historian, said that. But Tertullian thought it was Barnabas who wrote it. Others said it was Luke. Even others said it was Clement of Rome. And because there was a dispute over who wrote the book, the local church in Rome didn't think it was Paul, by the way, Because there was this dispute, some people even wondered whether it was truly an inspired book. When we get um, down to the 300s in church history, the names of Hilary, Jerome, and Augustine, of course, are the most important of the church fathers. All three of these men were not convinced that it was written by Paul, but they settled on speaking of it as coming from Paul because it was such a strong... Uh, tradition by that time, and after uh, the time of Augustine, it's virtually unchallenged that it was written by Paul until the time of the Reformation, when Erasmus, Luther, and Calvin all disputed the Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews. Luther felt it was of lesser value. He put it at the end of the New Testament. Of course, Luther had a problem with that. He put James at the end and said it wasn't all that good either. Uh, But anyway, Luther attributed the book to Apollos. Later, a um, Reformation scholar, Grotius by name, defended the Lucan theory of authorship. Well, you don't want to get all that into your notes. You just want to put this in there. No one knows for sure who wrote the book, and there's a great variety through church history. Since a lot of people want to hold on to the idea that Paul wrote the book, let me ask, could it have been Paul I'm going to give you three reasons why I think it was not Paul. Uh, Although for a while in early days when I was a, a young believer, I thought it was worth defending and did think it was written by Paul, but I am virtually confident it was not written by Paul. In the first place, every other Pauline letter has Paul saying, Hi, I'm Paul, you know, and making reference to his apostolic authority. In this book, there is no mention of a name for the author and no claim to apostolic authority at all, and this just doesn't fit Paul's other epistles. Now, if you want to defend Pauline authorship, you can say, well, this is because it was written to a Jewish congregation, and Paul was an apostle to Gentiles, and so he didn't want to make a big point about who he was. People might resent that, thinking, what's this minister to the Gentiles telling us Jews? Um and Paul deemed Christ the apostle to the Hebrews, and so he didn't want to make any claim to his apostolic position. Well, that's what the traditional defense says. A second problem is that there are extreme differences in literary style. The book of Hebrews is highly polished Greek. The book of Hebrews is well-reasoned. Every strand of argument is completed and carried out. Uh, it's not abrupt in its um, in its style. Uh, the uh, spiritual experiences of the author are not projected into the writing. But this is what Paul does all the time. And I say this with a great deal of affection, but you just have to understand Paul could be very disorganized when he wrote. Paul got excited. He'd start saying something, and then in the middle of a sentence he'd jump to another subject, you know? And you'd say, OK, Paul, you've got to go back and finish your sentence. Sometimes in Romans he just doesn't. He just... Forget it. He moves on. And he'll he'll start telling something theological and all of a sudden he'll break into a doxological phrase. Paul was um, a tremendous person, but it, I mean, his personality comes out in this epistle, and that's not here in the book of Hebrews. This is well measured, restricted, highly organized, not abrupt, polished Greek style. It just doesn't fit uh, the idea that Paul would write it. Um, Someone says, well, maybe a different amanuensis was helping Paul. What what is an amanuensis? Someone help me. Kathy, what's an amanuensis? A secretary. secretary. So we know that Paul used uh, Tertullus uh, when he wrote the book of Romans. We know that Peter used Sylvanus when he wrote his first epistle. Someone says, well, maybe Paul did write it, but he just used a different secretary. who had a more highly polished Greek style. You can uh, account for some of the differences that way, but the differences are so great that it's unlikely that uh, if Paul was dictating this, these are just secretarial things that made the difference. Maybe you still want to believe that Paul wrote it. You say, I can overcome the fact he didn't sign the book. I can overcome these stylistic differences. Well, I'm going to give you the thing that finally convinced me, though. It just will not fit. And that's the fact that in Hebrews 2 verse 3, we read something about the author that does not fit the history of Paul and his conversion. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3. And, um, if you found it, I will keep your finger there and turn to Galatians chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. Galatians 1 12 to 17. But first of all, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that the author received his Christian instruction from those who had directly heard the Lord. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which having at the first been spoken through the Lord was confirmed unto us by them that heard you have to do a little detective work. You find this verse, and it's pretty clear that the author, as well as most of the recipients of the book, had learned their Christianity as a second-generation experience. Those who had directly heard the Lord are the one, uh, those people, in turn, evangelized the readers and the author of this book. Now, can that be said of Paul? Was he a second-generation Christian in that way? Did he receive his Christian instruction from others? Boy, if you know the Book of Galatians, you know you're horrified. Paul is insistent that he didn't confer with the apostles. He learned his Christianity. He gained his Christian experience directly from the Lord. So, Galatians one, verse twelve: For neither did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came to me through revelation of Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse sixteen to reveal a son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Straightway I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and again I returned unto Damascus. So you see, what Paul says about his own experience does not jive with what we read in Hebrews 2.3. And so we have to, I think, reject the uh, Pauline authorship of the book. How about Barnabas, though? Could Barnabas have written the book? Uh, The church father Tertullian thought so, and likely Tertullian was reflecting on an earlier tradition and opinion when he said it. Um, And Barnabas, we know, was a Levite. Why is that important in terms of the book of Hebrews? Right? Yeah, all the priestly trappings of the book of Hebrews would fit right in with the interest of someone who was a Levite, that's right. Moreover, in Acts 4.36, Barnabas is called a son of consolation, a son of paraklesis, a son of exhortation and comfort, translated a son of consolation. You say, well, so what? Turn to the end of the book of Hebrews, to chapter 13, verse 22. And it is interesting, because the author says, I exhort you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I've written unto you in few words. The word there is the word of consolation. And so here you have Barnabas, the son of consolation, writing a word of consolation, it's suggested unto these readers. The word for consolation or exhortation is used seven times in this epistle. Well, there's problems with this too. Let's go back to Hebrews 2, verse 3. Was Barnabas a second generation hearer? Well, we don't know for certain, but it is unlikely. Because we do know this about Barnabas. He was an early convert to Christianity. He was a resident of Jerusalem. And he had considerable influence in the Jerusalem church, which makes it unlikely that he had not heard directly Jesus, had not directly heard Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. Moreover, Barnabas was deemed an apostle. You'll find that in Acts 14, verse 14, and in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 5 and 6. The importance of that observation is just this. To be an apostle, you had to directly be commissioned by Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter one, verses 21 and 22, Judas' position is being filled, and Peter lays out the qualifications. He must have been with the Lord. He must be a, a witness to the resurrection. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9:1, "Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord?" You see, to be an apostle, you had to have direct contact with Jesus. And the fact that Barnabas is called an apostle makes it unlikely that he fits the Hebrews 2.3 designation any more than Paul does. It's also the case that the approach taken by the author of this book seems far more Alexandrian, if I can put it that way, than it is Judaistic. There are, there's uh, two different kinds of Judaism in the world at this time. There's the Judaism of those who are in the land, the Jerusalem mentality uh, that sticks close to the synagogue and to the Pentateuch, a more Pharisaical Judaism, if you will. But then there's a the Judaism of the diaspora, the dispersed Jews throughout the Greek world who don't have the benefit of being born in Jerusalem or in Palestine and growing up there and theirs is more a Judaism affected by Greek ways of thought and philosophy. And the outlook of the author of this book its rather clear. is much more uh, like the Diaspora Jew, much more like the Hellenistic Jew, than it is uh, the Jew of the land. How about Luke? Let's try him. Would Luke fit? Well, this can be said. Um... The style would fit Luke very well, because Luke was a good Greek writer. Uh, You look at Acts and the Gospel of Luke, polished Greek, much better than uh, some of the uh, Koine that you see in the other writers of the New Testament. So that would fit. Um, In Origen's day, some thought it was Luke, and Clement of Alexandria regarded Luke at least as the translator, because it looked like such polished... uh, verbal and stylistic, um, uh, well the characteristics were so good uh, that uh, that would fit Luke. Moreover, there are a number of parallels between this book and the book of Acts, especially the speech of Stephen. It's really interesting. Stephen reviews Hebrew history, so does the book of Hebrews. Stephen looks to the call of Abraham and emphasizes he didn't possess the land. That's also found in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the divine order for the tabernacle is dwelt on by Stephen. That's also a feature of this book. The law is mediated by angels, says Stephen. So does this book. There's allusions to Joshua, and Jesus is the living word. All of this would fit in very nicely. But there are problems as well. Uh, the stylistic evidence that has been cited, you have to understand, is only a general line of evidence. I mean, many people could have good Greek style so that doesn't prove a whole lot and the parallels um, with the book of Acts may simply point to an independent tradition about Stephen's death and speech I mean Luke may have heard about this and the author of Hebrews may have heard about it and so they both you know, have common interest but that doesn't prove that it's one and the same person who wrote these things Um Moreover, the background of this letter is essentially Jewish, and as you know, Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And so I find this an unlikely hypothesis. Some would say Clement of Rome wrote it, because there are a number of similarities between Clement of Rome's letter to the Corinthian church, written about 95 AD, by the way, a number of similarities between Clement's letter to the Corinthians And um, this book, however, I think the differences between those two pieces of literature in their language, in their range of interest, in their theological method, and creative insight, I mean the differences far outweigh the similarities if you really want to compare them. And um, the fact that Clement has certain elements of Hebrews incorporated in his letter could be taken to prove nothing more but that he was acquainted with the book of Hebrews. Someone wrote the book of Hebrews, Clement read it, it influenced his life, and so it came out as he wrote to someone else. I think that's far more likely than that he was the author. Sylvanus. how about him? Sylvanus, of course, is Silas, who accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys, and helped Peter wrote, uh, write the book of First Peter. Um... There are verbal similarities between 1st Peter and Hebrews. And Silas, or Silvanus, knew Paul. He was in the Pauline circle. He was also known to the Jerusalem and Roman churches. That's all very interesting, but it's all too general for me. I don't think that proves anything definite about Silvanus. And the fact of the matter is, he had a Jerusalem background. He comes from the Jerusalem church. And as I've already said, the perspective of this writer is almost diasporic. It's Alexandrian in its approach to Judaism more than it is Palestinian Judaism in its approach. Well, Luther said it was Apollos. And uh, this can be said, there's no evidence against Apollos, is the writer. There's no reason why it couldn't be Apollos. Apollos. Um, If it was Apollos, that would account for the Alexandrian flavor of the epistle. Apollos did know Paul. He knew the scriptures very well. He had great oratorical eloquence, we know that. He was in contact with Timothy, and influential in a a number of churches. So all that would fit. Mm. But the problem is that there's no early tradition that supports it. I mean, you wait till Luther to get that suggestion... And uh, we have no biblical background or knowledge that Apollos wrote anything at all. And so it's, you know, basically speculation. There are a number of other ones you may be interested in. William Ramsey thought it was Philip. Uh, Adolf Parnack thought it was Priscilla. That accounts for why the author is not mentioned, by the way. Because a woman wouldn't put her own name on the book. Um, a more modern scholar, Ian uh, DeBarle, thought it was Jude, all of these based on loose connections, all of these having various kinds of problems. So you'll say, okay, warn us out, Dr. Bonson, tell us then who wrote the book. Well, I already told you. I think the answer is only God knows who wrote this book. We do know something about the author, though. We know that he knew Timothy. This is mentioned at the end of Hebrews. Did I read that verse for you? I guess I did not. Turn to Hebrews 13, verse 23. Know ye that our brother Timothy hath been set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. The author knew Timothy's circumstances and hoped that Timothy would would accompany him to visit this church. We we know he was a second-generation Christian who learned his Christianity from those who had seen the Lord directly. But I think that's all we know about him. Judith. Well I was looking at that verse, but what I thought was studying my Bible who had agether was written to the Hebrews from Aries by Timothy. And yet that verse twenty-three of how did they <laughs> say that after verse twenty three? No, um, whoever put that in your Bible was trying to help you along, but that's not the inspired original. <laughs> that's somebody's conjecture. All right, so we don't know who the author was well, who are the recipients of this book then? It would be helpful to at least know that much. And you all look at the uh, title and you say, well, we know it's to the Hebrews, right? The problem is that title's not attested prior to the early 3rd century, um, although I think the tradition goes back previous to that. We don't have any manuscript evidence previous to the 3rd century. Um, on the other hand, there's no evidence that ever had any other address or any other titles. From a very early date, it was the common belief then that the book was written to converted Jews. The most obvious evidence in favor of that idea, I mean, I hope this doesn't escape any of us, is the extensive use of the Old Testament and the author's assumption that his recipients will be acquainted with the details of the Levitical rituals, as well as men like Moses and Aaron and Joshua. The author keeps going back into All this Pentateuchal material, which seems to take for granted a knowledge of the Old Testament on the part of his readers. Furthermore, many of the key points of his teaching would have direct relevance only for those who were committed to the Jewish system. The author stresses the necessity of a suffering Messiah. Well, who needed to get that straight? The Jews. They couldn't believe that the Messiah would be a suffering Savior. The author argues for the superseding of the Levitical priesthood. Gentiles wouldn't care about that. Big deal. Uh, He argues for the Christian church being the fulfillment of the new covenant. He argues the passing away of the old covenant. He argues for a spiritual rather than a physical sanctuary. You see, none of this would make sense if it wasn't a Jewish audience, I think. Because no one else would pay that much attention or care that much. Moreover, I think this is really a, kind of a tender indication of who he's writing to. If you look at Hebrews 2, verse 16, the point of the author is angels were sent to minister to God's people. But how does the author put it in Hebrews 2:16? For verily not to angels doth he give help, but he giveth help to the seed of Abraham. You can almost see a Jew talking to a Jew there, can't you? It's not, its not, you know, to anyone but God's people, understood as the seed of Abraham, that angels give help to And I think there are certain other statements in the book that just wouldn't make sense if the recipients were not steeped in the Jewish system. Hebrews 9.15 And for this cause, he's the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, that they that have been called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. All those words, significant Old Testament theological background, but the author doesn't bother to elaborate. He just takes it for granted. his His readers will understand what he's talking about. And so maybe this will surprise you. I mean, it's so overwhelming. From the title and from the content of the book, that this was directed to a Jewish audience, there have nevertheless been a number of scholars who argue it was written to Gentiles. How can this be? They think that a predominantly Gentile audience was intended by this author. Um, They've argued that although Gentiles and Jews would have been acquainted with the Old Testament by the very process of becoming Christians, that is, Gentiles would have had to learn some Old Testament theology just in the in the fact that they became Christians, and after all, they were considered the new Israel and the seed of Abraham. Nevertheless, the Polish Greek style would not be expected from a Jewish writer, we're told. This is someone who knows his Greek. The problem with that argument is uh, all the Jews of the Diaspora knew Greek and knew it well. It was their common language. And besides, the style of the book may tell you something about the author. It doesn't tell you anything about the recipients, does it? They didn't have to know polished Greek in order to receive polished Greek. So that doesn't look like a very good argument, does it? Secondly, it's been urged that the Old Testament citations are taken from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint. And so why would the author use the Greek Old Testament if he's writing to Jews. Anyone want to help me out? This is a rather obvious answer. Glenn? Well, the Septuagint was often used even in Palestine. It was well known among most of the Jews, the Greek translation. But you see, if he was writing to someone who is outside of Palestine, you would expect the author to use that version of the Old Testament most familiar with his readers, which would have been the Septuagint. So this doesn't prove anything one way or another. Well, a great deal depends on which Jews you're talking about in the land of Palestine or outside. Even in the land of Palestine, Aramaic was more familiar to them than Biblical Hebrew. But in Palestine, the, most of those Jews, even what we might consider uneducated fishermen, knew three languages fairly well Biblical Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And outside of Palestine, Greek would have been well known by the Jews, and so this is not a good argument one way or another. Thirdly, um, people have argued that the extended description of the tabernacle detail in chapter 9 would be superfluous to a Jew. A Jew doesn't need to know the details of the tabernacle and where the showbread goes and all that. The Jew would know that already. And in Hebrews 7, verse 2, a couple of Hebrew words are translated. How could you translate this for Jews? They would know what that means. Well, I'm going to suggest maybe that indicates only that there were a few Gentiles in the audience that needed some help, or, much more likely, that the author was belaboring the obvious for dramatic effect. I mean, anyone who knows anything about preaching realizes you do that. If you think every sentence I utter to you on Sunday morning is calculated to tell you something you didn't know, then you don't understand the preaching process. In fact, sometimes... Something that you all know very well needs to be kind of laid out for you explicitly so you'll see some things you didn't realize about what you knew. Sometimes you you do state the obvious, and so I don't think that's a good argument. And then uh, finally, it's been argued that the author refers to the tabernacle instead of the temple, that the author lays stress on sacrificial ritual rather than upon the law, which was the pride of synagogue Judaism, and that this indicates that he's not writing to Jews. Well, but the author also likes to trace his arguments back to first principles, and on that basis you would expect him to argue from the tabernacle, not from the contemporary temple system, because he might say, Contemporary Judaism has got it messed up. Let's go back to the original and you'll see what it was supposed to be all about. Uh, throughout the book, the author is much more interested in the Old Testament and its pristine purity than he is with the pr- present practice of Judaism in Jerusalem. So I don't buy the idea of a Gentile um, readership for this book. I just think it's hard to... to to see how the elaborate argumentation of the book based as it is on the Levitical order based uh, so thoroughly uh, on the Old Testament would have been expected to be persuasive to any other circle of readers but Jewish readers. However, the book was not written to Jews at large. It does say in the title, To the Hebrews. But if you read the book, and we're going to get into it now and do a little detective work, it's obvious that the author is writing to a particular community in a specific locality. It's not just, the Jews, wherever you may be found, I have this to say. He's writing to a particular church, to a particular group maybe within the church, in a particular place. Well, how do I know that? Let me give out some passages uh, for you to look up, and uh, as we study this, I think we'll begin to see a little bit more clearly who the specific recipients would be. <clears throat> so as I go around the circle here, Paula, uh, would you reread for us Hebrews 2, verse 3. Um, David, Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. Jamie, Hebrews 12:4. Stacy, Hebrews 6, verse 10. Uh, Freddie Hebrews 5 verse 11. Priscilla, Hebrews 13:17. Julie Hebrews 13:19. Uh, David Hebrews 13:23. Uh, Bob, Hebrews 13:18. And I'm going to give out some more for the next paragraph here too. Don, Hebrews 1, verse 2. Judith, Hebrews 3, verse 13. Scott, Hebrews 10, 25. Pat, Hebrews 12, 27. Um, Kathy, Hebrews. One minute, I've already given those two up. Hebrews six ten. Then uh, Al, Hebrews ten, thirty-four, uh Marilyn Carrier, Hebrews thirteen, sixteen, Lowell, Hebrews thirteen, verses two and five, uh, Doug, Acts eleven, twenty-seven to thirty, Mike, Hebrews twelve, four. And I'm going to stop at that point. We'll have more later. But this will help us go through this a little more quickly. If you all have your verses ready, I'll try to uh, collect all this evidence for you. Okay, I'm saying that the author is writing to a particular Jewish Christian community in a specific locality. And the reason why I think we know that is that the author identifies specific points in the group's history. He's not writing to these Jews anywhere they may be. He knows some things about these Jews in a particular place with a particular history. In the first place he knows the circumstances of their conversion. Hebrews 2.3 How shall we escape from the black a promise? After it was at first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So he knows how these people came to know the Lord. He knows there have been days of persecution for this group. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. But remember the former days, when after doing a light of clean life you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made of a spectacle through the social tribulation, and partly by becoming terrorized with those who were the seed. Do you show sympathy to the children and accept it joyfully with the of your property? knowing that you have free a better salvation in the Bible. The author knows a great deal about what they've suffered in the former days of persecution. Hebrews 12.4 you know, He says, You've striven, but not yet to the point of blood. He also knows their commendable service. Hebrews 6.10 John so is not unjust; he will not forget your works in the love People, is this is a congregation that had a reputation for helping those in need. on the other hand the author knew the present need of correction in these people Hebrews 5 verse 11 He knows that they have become slow in their spiritual growth dull of hearing Hebrews 1317. He knows that they have a tendency to be anarchistic, that they are being unruly and not submitting to their overseers at this point. So you see, the author has quite a bit of information about these people. They are a specific group of people. And he knows the readers personally hoping to revisit them. Hebrews 13, 19. <clears throat> the author says, I want to come back and see you again. I want to do it soon. Hebrews 13:23. Isn't that amazing? He says, and if Timothy gets out of prison soon, I'll bring him with me when I come see you. Um... The author asked personally for prayer on his behalf, Hebrews thirteen eighteen. Pray for us, for we are we have a good conscience And he also has definite news about Timothy, Hebrews thirteen twenty three, which we've uh, just read, saying if Timothy gets out soon, then I'll bring him with me. So you see, he knows the local circumstances. He knows the needs of the people. He asks for their prayers. He says, I want to be with you soon. So clearly it's a particular group of Jewish Christians he's writing to. Where are they? What is the destination of the letter? Where is this local converted Jewish assembly that he's writing to? Now it might be thought very naturally that it's in Palestine or maybe in Jerusalem itself. After all, patristic literature the the writings of the church fathers often uses the designation the word Hebrews for the Jerusalem church itself and it may well be that the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 is the eminent crisis that is mentioned in this book look at Hebrews 1 verse 2 the Today today. In these last days, Hebrews 3.13. Sure Time may be short. While it's called today, you better act in a certain way. Hebrews 10.25. Not particularly assembling ourselves together, but the are coming, and going one another, and so much the more, that we see the as you see, a particular day approaching. There's an imminent crisis here. Hebrews 12.27 of of Right. A day of shaking is uh, about to come upon them. So some have thought, well, this is an indication that uh, warning about the siege of Jerusalem is being intimated to the readers of the book. We also know that there have been previous persecution of these people, as we've read already, and that would certainly fit the history of the Jerusalem church, as we read it in the book of Acts. Moreover, there's no mention of a Jewish-Gentile controversy in this church, which was a common problem in the early days of the church, except in Palestine, where the church was predominantly Jewish anyway. Nevertheless, there are discrepancies with this view, that make it, I think, really quite hard to accept when all is said and done. In the first place, it's highly improbable that the Jerusalem Christians would be described in terms of Hebrews 2.3 as second-generation Christians. That all of those who were in the Jerusalem church, none of them had heard the Lord himself directly? That's not very likely. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 12, we read that they have need that someone teach them the rudiments all over again. That's not likely for the Jerusalem Jewish Christians, is it? The approach of the author, as I've already said, is much more Hellenistic than it is Ju- uh, Judaistic, and he uses the Septuagint so much that this none of this fits a Jerusalem destination. Moreover, we read specifically in the book that the community addressed by the author is a generous group of people. Uh, Hebrews 6.10 so For God is not so unjust as to overlook the work and the love which he is true for this day and so long sage as his portion of it. Hebrews 10 34. You sacrifice your soul and your kingdom in order to the constitution of your father. Because you knew that you yourself were there at my intervention. Hebrews 13, 16. <coughs> Hebrews 13, verses 2 and 5. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, somewhat unwittingly entertains angels. Let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content to trust him with your death. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you are all these indications then that this is a, a, a congregation that has helped those in need, that has willingly let their property be despoiled, has visited those in prison, has been generous in giving to the saints. But you know what we know from history about the Jerusalem church was struck with poverty. And uh, I'm going to have to uh, forget reading the passages I gave out about this, but in your notes, you might note Acts 11, to Romans 15-26, and the whole of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians talk about the famine and the poverty in the Jerusalem area that the other Christian churches had to chip in and help out about. And so it just doesn't fit to say we have this very generous uh, church that the book of Hebrews is written to, and that that church is the one that was struck by famine and had to be helped by the other churches. So historically, the circumstances don't match. Moreover, Hebrews 12.4 says, You have not yet resisted unto blood. There have been no martyrdoms in this congregation, but that hardly would apply to the church in Jerusalem, which knew martyrdom from the very earliest days, Stephen and James and a number of others. So I don't think that the destination was Palestine. I think the destination was Rome. I think this book was written, well, we know, almost for certain, that it was written to Italy, and very likely then to the church in Rome. How do we know it was written to Italy? Turn to Hebrews 13, and you notice um, verse 24. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. They of Italy salute you, sounds very much like Italian Christians who are away from their homeland writing back greetings home. They of Italy say hi. It's also possible, of course, that the Italian church is they of Italy, saluting the other church to which this book is written. But that would be a very awkward thing to say. The whole Italian church salutes you. It's much more likely that the author was familiar with some Italian Christians in his locality and as he wrote to Rome or to Italy he says, and these Italian Christians say hello to you. You probably know that. Yes? Yes. Well, I'm going to mention that toward the end of the lesson, so let me come back to that. Um, We do know that the Epistle was known very early in Rome Because Clement of Rome cites it in his Corinthian epistles around 95 A.D. and uses language that is very um, uh, similar to it. In Hebrews 13:24, is that correct verse? No, it's um, 23. The mention is made of Timothy, and we know that Timothy was well known to Roman Christians because. In Colossians 1.1 and Philemon, verse 1, Paul writes from Rome in prison and says, Timothy salutes you. And so we know that Timothy was with Paul in Rome, and so that would fit this. Uh, the Roman church was known from other sources to be a generous church. That fits what we've already read about this particular congregation. And there's a, an interesting similarity between Hebrews 13.9 which says, Be not carried away by divers and strange teachings, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not by meats wherein they that occupied themselves were not profited. All of Romans 14 is given to this question of the profitability of meats and the disputes over them. And uh, in Hebrews 10.32, the mention of their goods being uh, dispossessed or ruined, the spoilation of their goods fits very well what we know of the experience of the Roman church both under the edict of Claudius Uh, you need to know the Roman emperor Claudius suspected the Jews of being subversive and so he banished them from Rome and allowed their goods to be taken by anybody who wanted them fits that it also fits the the, uh, ferocity of the Neronian persecution where uh, Christians because they were understood to be Jews I believe Christians were uh, impaled and, and lit aflame to light Nero's um, evening parties. And so all the things we read about this church could easily fit the Roman circumstance, at least the Italian church's circumstance. There are some problems with the Roman destination. Could, could the church, or at least all of the members of this church, have been evangelized by eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ that far away from Palestine? Well, that's a little unlikely, but if you take that in the sense that this church had its origin from those who were in Palestine once, maybe it could be fit in. Um, We do have this reference to troubles being in former days. Does that fit the Roman situation? Some have argued it doesn't. I, I think it does. I think the former days refers to the Edict of Claudius and what Jewish Christians went through then the spoilation of their goods for instance and nevertheless they haven't resisted unto blood because it's just at the very beginning of the Neronian persecution before he has broken out with his fury against the church Um, and I have to grant that the absence of any mention of Gentiles is odd if Italy was the destination but on the other hand Ancient inscriptions record a synagogue in Rome that was known simply as Hebrews. That's all, it was just called Hebrews. That being the case, we know that Jews tended to collect in rather exclusive groups in Rome, and maybe there was a group of Jewish Christians, a Jewish congregation in Rome, and there was no need to make reference to Gentiles. Well, there are a lot of other possibilities that people have put up for grabs, Alexandria, Colossae, Ephesus, Galatia, Corinth, uh, Cyprus, Syria, Antioch, and uh, I'm not going to go through all the pros and cons for those because I think I'm going to wear you down if I do. None of them have very convincing evidence for or against. They're just, you know, stab in the dark type things, I believe. In the end, despite the difficulties that I mentioned, The Roman destination, the Italian destination, more generally, I think is about the only one that fits and will hold up to scrutiny. We could go into um, uh, a few other interesting hypotheses about the nature of this congregation, but because I don't think you can prove it one way or another, I'm not going to bother to try to take a definite stand on them. But just for your interest, let me mention them real quickly. Some have thought this is a group of Jewish Christian intellectuals that uh, received an Alexandrian education and found it hard to give up Judaism. They're now pulling off onto their own and ignoring their leaders, forming a house church of kind of uh, a study group that's too good for the rest of the the Jewish uh, Christians there. Others have thought these were converted Jerusalem priests familiar with the preaching of Stephen. Acts 6-7 says those priests that were converted were close to Stephen, but they are now being tempted to return to their former dignity. Um, Hebrews 5-12 says, By now they ought to be teachers. Well, that would fit. By their experience, they should have been teachers, and yet their theology was immature and elemental, as Hebrews 6 verses 1 and 2 tells us. The idea of Christ's The high priest would be of great interest to converted priests as well. Well, that's one idea. Thirdly, uh, some have thought these were converts from the Qumran sect because the Qumran sect um, repudiated the current Jerusalem temple and its sacrifices and maybe they were now weighing the advantages of Christianity over against their former commitment to the Qumran sect. What the author then does is shows the proper way to interpret the Old Testament, offsetting the rather bizarre interpretive methods that we know were used in the Qumran community. And the author emphasizes that the Old Testament is really fulfilled in the New Covenant, not in a restoration of the Old, which is what the Qumran community wanted. And then finally, some have thought that Gnostic-like heresies had infected this congregation If you look at Colossians 2, verses 14 to 23, you'll get a taste of Gnosticism in the days of the New Testament. And interestingly, Hebrews, corresponding to that, puts a great emphasis upon angels, mentions, quote, strange teachings, salvation by meats and washings, as well as warns against deliberate wrongdoing, which we know Gnostic licentiousness encouraged in people. Um... However, this between you and me, the fact that Gnostic philosophy is not attacked in the book makes it, I think, incredible that the author uh, had a primary purpose of refuting Gnosticism. You just can't neglect Gnostic philosophy if that's what you uh, if you want to get rid of the Gnostics. Well, enough on that. What do we know so far? A second generation Jewish Christian who knew Timothy wrote to a Jewish congregation in Italy probably in Rome, did this at the beginning of the Neronian persecution. They haven't resisted under blood yet, but they have suffered a great deal in former days. What else do we know about this congregation? Here are some circumstances, and I think the purpose of the book, and then we'll conclude tonight. Hebrews 5.12 indicates that a sufficient period for maturing had already elapsed since their conversion. Because Hebrews 5.12 says, for when by reason of the time you want to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you the rudiments. So we know they've been around for a while. We know they've been persecuted. That's been referred to already. And now this is a crucial point. And we know that some were being tempted to fall away from the faith. Hebrews 6, verse 6. It, it refers to those who have tasted the powers of the age to come and then fell away making it impossible to renew them again unto repentance, since they crucified of themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, that it waver not, for he he is faithful that promised. There is reference to wavering. Look at verse 26. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Verse 29. Of how much sore punishment think ye shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot under the Spirit of grace. Clearly, the threat to this congregation was apostasy treading underfoot the blood of Christ, doing despot to the Spirit. Moreover, as we've seen in the 13th chapter, verse 24 and uh, verses 7 and 17, some have demonstrated a rather anarchistic spirit, not wishing to submit to the leaders. They have shown a rather separatist tendency, not being willing to greet other Christians. They're too good for that. And uh, in verse uh, 25 of chapter 10, some were being tempted to forsake the Christian assembly. And so I think that the author's intention, as he tells us at the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 22, was to exhort them with the word of consolation, but written in a few words. It's a long book for us, but he says, I've only gotten started from what I could be saying. If he is exhorting them not to fall away from the faith, why then all the doctrinal passages? People have wondered about that. I want to suggest, I know the time is up, I'll be brief about this, I want to suggest that shows people don't understand doctrine and the way it functions. See, the author uses those doctrinal passages as the foundation for his impassioned pleas to these people. Doctrine is not some vain intellectual thing for this author. Doctrine is the only thing that helps him settle the practical problem in the church. If your doctrine's not right, then apostasy can't be curbed. The readers were being tempted to apostatize from the faith. And that's why there's an extended argumentation about the superiority of Christ over all that the old order offered. The fact that the author Argues about the superiority to the Old Testament indicates that apostasy, the apost- the apostates were tempted to return to Judaism. We don't have anything explicitly said about them going back to Judaism, unless Hebrews 13 verse 13 is a reference to it. Let us therefore go forth unto him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Outside the camp, what camp? the camp of Israel thought of as in the wilderness and the author says let's go outside the camp let's leave Judaism and suffer the reproaches of Christ with him after all he was crucified outside the camp and that may be an explicit reference to Judaism but all the rest we take by inference but I think it's a sound one the author wants to prove that Christ is superior to the old covenant because some Jews are being tempted to wander back into it You see, Christianity didn't have the apparent prestige or the ritual splendor or the social acceptability of ancient Judaism. And so the author wanted to offset the tendency to leave the New Covenant Church and go back into the old. The language of Hebrews 6.6 and Hebrews 10.29 is very strong about renouncing Christ. And so... Some scholars have thought this congregation's problem is they weren't embracing the worldwide mission of the church. Well, maybe they had that problem, but that isn't the key burden of this author. This author says it's much worse than that. It's not just a failure to go on to see the universal implications of Christianity. What's afflicting this church is that people are being tempted to renounce the Savior himself and regain their Jewish acceptability. And so now let me read my conclusion again, where we began. What do we know about the book of Hebrews? I hope you've learned a lot tonight. And when you read the book now, to kind of come alive in its historical setting, I think Hebrews was written by a second-generation Christian, probably a converted Hellenistic Jew, who knew Timothy, but since no mention is made of Paul, Paul is already dead. It was written to a Jewish Christian congregation in Italy, probably in Rome itself, that had existed for some time but was now being threatened with apostasy to Judaism on the one hand and Roman persecution on the other. The fall of Jerusalem is not mentioned in the book, you'd certainly expect that given the argument of the author, and yet we do know that the day is approaching, Hebrews 10.25, I think that indicates the fall of Jerusalem is yet ahead and imminent. There's been suffering up to this point for the Roman readers. They lost their goods. Many were imprisoned during the Edict of Claudius, perhaps, yet they have not come to martyrdom. And so I think this places the epistle sometime after the Edict of Claudius, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, and very likely at the very outset of the Neronian persecution. In AD 64. How's that for an evening of detective work? Do you have any questions you would like to ask or comments you want to make about uh, our lesson tonight? It's background of the Book of Hebrews, Pat. Uh, The fact that it was in to the people doesn't excuse; wouldn't necessarily conclude that there might be something else. No, no. For the sure. For the most part, um, the, the people who write about these things discuss a predominantly Jewish congregation or a predominantly Gentile congregation. It doesn't have to be exclusive. Some have even argued, because they've seen the evidence on both sides and just can't be convinced, they've said, well, maybe it's a mixed congregation. That accounts for all of the evidence. Well, that's the uh, council of despair and scholarship, you know. I agree with everybody. <laughs> Uh, I'm w- I'll, I'll put my neck out. I think it's a Jewish audience and I think that they're in Italy and it was written by a second generation Christian and it wasn't Paul. I saw another hand. Bob? Uh, maybe it's in the first beginning The wind was the first pastor that. I believe the first church father to mention that would be Pantanus and uh, this would make it... Uh, Early 3rd century, late 2nd century, I'd have to look it up for sure, but uh, uh, so that's some time. Others would say the fact that uh, you wait that long to get any indication shows that the church knew it. It was all taken for granted, and that's why it was never mentioned. So it's hard to make much of the dating of people discussing this. Another possibility is no one knew, and so they started making guesses about that time. Mike? Is there a date for now we know that Paul died early in the Neronian persecution if we trust you know church history and so this would uh, fit in with what I said Paul probably died early in 64 this book was written I take it very shortly thereafter the reference to if Timothy is released may suggest that Timothy was taken into prison about the same time and was awaiting his uh, hope hopeful release. Uh, The church itself, Paul would not be considered a member of this congregation. The author writing to these people says, You have not resisted unto blood. Uh, Yes, Don. By second generation, I mean that he was evangelized not by the Lord himself, but by those who had known the Lord. So there's a a, a one teaching generation between Jesus and the author of this book. So he's not an apostle. At least he's not an... Well, yeah, he's not an apostle. I can put it that way. Um, Then when I say he was a Hellenistic Jew, I mean, I don't think he was a Jerusalem Jew or a Palestinian. I think he was a Jew of the Diaspora, one who knew Greek philosophy or ways of thinking, knew the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and didn't write from the perspective of contemporary Judaism as practiced in Jerusalem, but from the perspective of synagogue Judaism around the Greek world. And then that he was converted means that he's a Christian and no longer a Jew. So a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew in the Greek world, who has been converted... But did not know the Lord directly. Kathy? the Is that a major problem? No, I don't believe it is. The Chester Beatty papyrus includes Testament books, which is very early witness. The one of the problems is the Muratorian canon, which is uh, one of the earliest and strongest uh, uh, pieces of evidence we used in arguments about the canon does not include Hebrews, but the Muratorian canon is also a, a, a document that is destroyed at the end. We don't know how much more was there because it's cut off, and so the assumption is Hebrews was there but uh, is not part of the document as we now possess it. Bob. <laughs> Well, it it can be fascinating, but it can also be very technical. Um, I think you would do well to pick up a New Testament introduction, the, uh, the Intervarsity Press one that's rather standard by Donald Guthrie, is the one that I would recommend. But it's very detailed. Uh, a lot of my notes tonight came from that. But you might, and, and it goes through this sort of thing for all the books of the Bible. Okay, one more question, Marilyn. I'd like to know what I'm glad you asked that it, it could take us a whole hour uh, or more to look into that don't no no feel sorry I'm glad somebody thought about that there are some people who think writers of the New Testament can only have authority if they were apostles or if their work was verified by an apostle for instance, Luke wrote books but of course Paul would vouch for Luke right Mark wrote books but then again Mark went with Paul certain places. so people think you either have to be an apostle or an associate of an apostle to write with any authority James and Jude appear to have been brothers of our Lord himself and so that gives them authority what about the book of Hebrews why would anybody account this to be an authoritative book and that helps us to see what the true nature of biblical authority is I don't think it's so mechanical as tracing it to an apostle or an associate of an apostle. The book of Hebrews is authority because God inspired it. and That means the voice of God is heard in the book of Hebrews. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. What made the book of Hebrews authoritative is not that anybody could pin it on Paul, or Sylvanus or Luke, but that when they read it they said this obviously is the voice of authority. God speaks in this book. And in the end, I think that's what makes a book canonical. It's not external relations to an apostle, but the internal authority of God himself speaking in the book. You, know, you could write a book where bunch, bunch people, the majority of people who are studying in theology talk about the brain through them actually make counsel in the same sense nope, I don't think so. Because... It's one thing to say, he's written a good book on theology. Another thing to say, thus saith the Lord. And when you read Hebrews, you hear this author saying, with the authority of God himself. And uh, the church as a whole has recognized that from the very beginning. It's not I can't add to the canon now. The canon is for God's people in all ages. And uh, anyway, we get into a canon discussion that would take a long time, as I already indicated. And we really have to stop this evening. But the, it's not a subjective matter, and it's not a matter of people voting. We happen to like this, let's put it in the Bible. It's a matter that God inspired the book, and the Holy Spirit led the church to submit to the authority of that book, to hear the voice of Christ speaking, and to follow it. Well, let's have a word of prayer. and Jim, would you do that, please? Father in heaven, how we do we thank you, Lord, that you communicate to us through the word that you have throughout all of these years. Preserve your word so that we might you know, study and learn about you. How we thank you, Lord, for this book of Hebrews? We thank you for the concern that is shown there for those Christians and for the lessons we see there for us. We pray, Lord, that in our study with this, book, you would help us to hear your voice and to know how it applies to our lives today in Jesus' Christ's name. Amen. Amen.